Hey listeners, Chloe here. If you need to stay as up to date with the latest developments and innovations in the luxury industry as I do, you need to dive into Vogue Business. It's your ticket to a global perspective on fashion and beauty, delivering exclusive insights that will give you the edge in this competitive dynamic industry. Just visit VogueBusiness.com today and use the code RUN20 at checkout to join the Vogue Business community. That's VogueBusiness.com, promo code RUN20. Don't miss out. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Oh my God, Chloe. Chloe, where are you? Did you hear? The news just broke. The news just broke that Phoebe Philo is going to be showing this September, finally. (laughs) Anyway, now on with the show. This is The Run Through. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. Today, Vogue.com published the blockbuster. It's the Pentagon Papers of fashion. (laughs) An interview with Demna, the designer of Balenciaga, who is giving his first interview after the end of 2022 scandal involving the Balenciaga ads that were accused of supporting child pornography. And there's a long interview conducted over several visits. And I thought it was very interesting. He said all the things that he had said before, but I thought an interesting evolution that he said he's going to not focus so much on viral pop culture moments. It's going to be more about the craftsmanship and the tailoring and the actual clothing. He said something about it's going to be about, you know, the hem yeah. of a sleeve rather than the Instagram wow moments. <laughs> <laughs> that part of the interview stuck out to me, too. I think also... You know, he'd never talked about the fact, you know, why he only goes by one name, I think. Oh, yeah, I thought that was a good question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he obviously, like many of us, suffers from anxiety. You know, that's why he covers his face. And I think also people get his name wrong. If everybody rewinds slightly to to that moment at the Met, maybe two years ago. Yeah where Kim Kardashian showed up in that. It always comes back to her. It does, it does. I mean, she was the face of the brand for a long time. Mm. And completely covered, like, in this, like, Zentai suit, skin-tight Zentai suit. And he was her date, and a lot of people speculated who it was because his face was was covered. Security guard. (laughs) Everybody was like, is that Kanye? But his build is so different to Mm. Kanye. I mean, slightly different to Kanye's. So it couldn't have been, but a lot of people thought it was Kanye. But actually, it was Demna. And, you know, he was Andrew Bolton and a Kim stunt double. (laughs) (laughs) No. But no, he's never really talked. He's never really gotten so candid about that and about how difficult it is for him to also, for that to be part of his job, for him to be a public face. of Right, his, to not just be a creative in yeah. the atelier. Yeah, and that's been a shift that's happened over the last couple of decades. You know, since the dawn of social media, not even the last couple of decades, maybe basically the last decade, that there's been this expectation that there's like cult of personality around this design and they also have to be a face. Yeah, but does m- making your name into a one-name Madonna-esque exercise make you less conspicuous? I think no. He had other reasons. He wanted to sort of distinguish, make a distinction between the work that he did before for Vetement and the work that he's doing now for for Balenciaga. And on a practical level, a lot of people get his name wrong. His last name wrong. That's true. It's uh, Zvalia. Yes, but spelled spelled G-V. It's a beautiful name. I actually think Demna's a beautiful name. Yeah. And Shoma, you had... 
the big news this week, <laughs> the Erica Badu cover. I've gotten so many texts from completely non-Vogue really? people who are just complete Badu nuts. Yeah. And everyone is going nuts for this cover. Yeah. I have to say, when I read it, and she says, Alexa, play wind chimes. I just I died. It's spectacular. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I think people, are, she's so beloved. And I think it was unexpected for us, or at least to some people it felt unexpected. Indeed. And she's such a singular kind of one of one. She has this really sort of deep spiritual vibe. And she definitely, without me even asking, like pulled tarot cards, gave me relationship advice. I mean, she's such a... Yeah, she, she has, got into it. She gets she gets into it. Wow. Yeah. And hopefully we'll be chatting with her next week. Yeah. I'm really excited for her to be in the studio and for us to sprinkle some of her fairy dust right here. The studio could use some fairy dust. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the Badudio. No, Badudio. <laughs> well, that's next week. This week later in the show, we have a visit with Raul Lopez of Luar. But first, a chat with one of our favorite co-workers. Mic check, one, two, one, two. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm scared. Don't You're be not. scared. I want my mommy. You don't, don't be scared. Your mom, actually, I've met, is fab. And she's so fab. the most beautiful woman, I think. I mean, she's an angel. She's quite literally an angel from heaven above. Has she ever her. come to work with you? She's never like take oh my your mom to work Wait, day. Actually, yes. Once we were shooting in the desert in Palm Springs for she lives in Palm Springs. She lives in Palm Springs, okay. and she came and she brought in and out for everyone. And oh. I was so. What proud. were you shooting? We were shooting Universal Standard, which was a plus size brand. Very cool. It was like cowboy hats in the desert and all these like amazing bodacious women looking like mm. goddamn iconic. And then your mom rolled in and with then my mom and rolled out. in with it and out. And then Tess <laughs> McMillan, who was like 17 at the time, who oh, we loved Tess, she, her flight that night was at like 1 a.m. So we all went to like my mom's house and she like had a little sleepover. I felt like I was like 14 again. I was like, mom, like, can we have cookies? It was very. <laughs> Did you grow up in Palm Springs? No, I grew up like all over Southern California. My mom was okay. very much a rolling stone. I think okay. that's where I get my free spiritness from. Okay. Yeah. And just to rewind, Gabriella Karifa Johnson, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you here. Tell us your official Vogue title and how you like to describe yourself to, if you were sitting next to someone on an airplane, they were like, hi, what do you do? What's what's your response? Okay. Well, my official title is a mouthful. It is (laughs) Global Contributing Fashion Editor at Large of Vogue magazine. Woof. (laughs) And usually when I am introducing myself to people, because for some reason that's always like the second question you get. It's like, well, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a stylist. Sometimes I say I fancy about with shoes and clothes, (laughs) but I I usually like bring it home with I'm a stylist and a fashion editor. Most people know of my work because in a very short amount of time after 2020, when the fashion industry was really reconciling with the fact that there were very few black creatives and few black women creatives who were being elevated to the level of styling fashion covers, I had a very quick succession of of many Vogue covers. So okay. I think people know me as like the first black fashion editor to style a Vogue cover. Which is a major thing to know. Yeah, it is. It and is. you styled some some of my favorites. I loved Paloma, Bella... Amanda Gorman. Vice President Harris, people, the extremely online internet was upset about that cover because Mm. they felt it was too casual, but I thought it was cool. Me too. I did too. I mean, I think we were just coming out of a time in American politics where there was, it was very hard to relate to anyone in that 
office. And, you know, Vice President Harris was bringing humanity back to that role. But yeah, all of those covers, I mean, I think if you're on the cover of the Vogue, it means something and you mean something to mm. a lot of people. So anytime I have the opportunity to style one of these incredible people, I try to give it my all. But yes, I loved the Paloma cover. That was mm. my first. And it was with Annie Leibovitz, which was very daunting and crazy because I was, was like... Is that the thinking, first time you did a cover with Annie? Oh, God, it was the that's... first time I did a cover with Annie as like... The editor. I'd been because on a few. Because you started as Tawny Goodman, legendary fashion editor, as Correct. her assistant many Correct. years ago. Correct. And even before that, I was Hamish Bowles' assistant. Yeah, we sat. I remember that. We sat, that. We sat with you. Yeah, yeah. we sat a few desks Features girlies. Yeah. yeah. I loved that. It was like, I think. Back at Four Times Square. Back yeah. at Four Times Square. Oh, my God. Where every day was a test of whether you'd be able to dodge a plush animated character <laughs> in Times Square <laughs> on your way into the office. It was like. <laughs> All right, Gab, I'd like to hear about what you said was an important shoot, styling Paloma Elsesser, who is a model we all love. Do you want to tell us a little bit about her and what that shoot was like? Yeah, I mean, she's the best, but I just remember wanting that cover to mean something to girls like us, like, you know, early adulthood, black women, black femmes, fat women, curvy women, and I wanted it to be a glorification and celebration of how beautiful she is, her body, but also her mind and her power and her confidence in herself. And I remember the goal really being, like, how much can we take away? Like, it's not going to be about, like, this huge fashion moment. It's, like, how far can we strip back to just really communicate the essence of this incredible person? And Annie was, you know, is a bit of a minimalist, too, in terms of fashion. She's not going to love, like, a pink puffy ball gown so uh it was a perfect it was a match made in heaven and I think it was a really powerful cover that I'm very proud of will you walk us through the steps of putting a cover like that together because I think I'm still on the idea of like what does a fashion editor mean in that case yeah yeah yeah. um I think it kind of starts for me always with the story like what story are we trying to tell why is this cover important what is the takeaway point when if you only see this image and you never purchase this magazine and you're on Instagram scrolling, what is going to capture you and engage you and stop you to want to discover more about this person? And I also think because we are working within an establishment that is so revered and so uh, iconic, it's like, how are we going to make the picture that's going to last forever? Because we're still referencing these old covers, old images. It's like you want to become a part of the canon. So I think the fashion editor's job is to work with the clothes and the person and their comfort level to create an image or furnish a picture that ultimately is taken and engineered by a very brilliant photographer. And in this case, we landed on like this very calm palette. We were shooting in a very serene lake. And it was like, I want this this image to look like Greek statuary. And so when we were thinking about this being an American model on the cover of American magazine, Michael Kors obviously is the first lookbook you're looking through. And, you know, asked Michael to make these clothes because as of now, sample sets typically don't include sizes beyond a sample size. So, you know, we did have a fair amount of custom. We also work with, as fashion editors and stylists, we always work with incredible tailors who can work magic on the day of the shoot to make clothes that women feel good wearing. But So there's a tailor on set or there's, there's someone who's already fit beforehand or both? 
In the most ideal of circumstances, you will fit. You'll have a fitting day before. But oftentimes with scheduling and all of the madness of being somebody who is on the cover of Vogue, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you have a lot of things to do and we don't always get a fitting day. But in this case, we really made it a priority because if we're going to have somebody who is not a straight size model or a sample size model, they better feel good. What does straight size model mean? Um, I mean, this is so interesting. I think... It's now kind of become—the term has now become mid-size, which there was an article about very recently. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You know, I think I'm still in digesting. The middle, right? It's somewhere, it's somewhere in the middle. a sample size and um, plus size or curve Yeah, model. it's—I mean, it's—I like think I would say— six to ten? It, it would be like two, two—I think it's like honestly two, two, that ten. Is That's what straight sizing two? is. That's oh, what straight uh, sizing uh, is. And then uh, mid-size would be like six— Eight. So there's some you know, overlap? There's some overlap. It's like right. the middle of the spectrum right. of straight sizes, meaning sizes that are typically, desi- you know, created and right. on racks. And this past week, there was a New York Times article all about the, the rise of the midsize model? Yes. Or the lack of the I mid-size I think it was a lack of the representation of the midsize model, which I think is a good impetus. Like, I think we should mm-hmm. be questioning... Uh, representation and diversity of representation across the board. But I also think, like, body neutrality is really fab. And, like, maybe we just stop talking about people's sizes in general. I think the conjecture is, like, getting frustrating for a lot of people, especially because it becomes, like, an Olympics of haves and have-nots. It's Mm -hmm. like when you are a size 18, like I am right now, it is hard to feel sympathetically towards a size six or eight who can go into a store and go shopping. Right. Um, and do you find when you go into a store, are you fi- not finding sizes? No. I okay. mean, it's very, very, very hard for me to shop. It's very, very hard for me to shop. And I happen to be now in a place where I can get my clothes tailored or I can get things made custom. Like the worst thing in the world, which is why not me dropping hints to get invited to the Met Ball, but like I kind of hope I never am invited to the Met Ball, is like <laughs> the idea of a black tie event in which you have a limited amount of time to prepare for it. What was it like going into the industry? You know, what were you what was your <laughs> what was mm. your experience? I my entree into the industry was actually pretty seamless only because I am stubborn and like very persistent. And as soon as I decided that I wanted to work in magazines, I was like, well, I'm gonna go to school in New York and I'm never ever gonna go to class. And all I'm gonna do is intern. And that's what I did. And there were websites at the time. I'm like I feel so um lucky that I grew up post like the hills where like fashion internships were a thing that you were aware of when you were a freshman in college. Oh, interesting. And there was a website called Ed 2010. I remember it because I would look on it every day and I was waiting for Condé Nast because I'm from, you know, a a family of overachievers and we always wanted to be, you know, you always got to be at the diamond. You know what I mean? I'm into working my way up, but but I still have to start at the top. So I'm like Condé Nast listing, Condé Nast listing and allure fashion internship came up and I just bombarded Thomas Waller who you know was the fashion assistant at the time with emails every single day until he agreed to have an interview and I kind of nailed it and I got hired and then I never left this building (laughs) and then I never left this building ever Um, but yeah it was a lot of internships I think I worked at like 10 different places eventually I spent some time at like 
Hearst and the other big publishing houses. But um, it was always about Vogue for me. I was like, I'm going to work there. Dressing celebrities versus dressing models. I mean, you, you have to do both in the work mm. that you do when you do a cover. What's the negotiation there? When What's the difference? And what, what excites you about both of those kind of like worlds? I think that models in general engage with fashion on a on a level that's much closer to how their their co-collaborators and creators in the process do like photographers they buy into the process and they understand the process from lighting to fittings to composition like they are really active participants right. in in this collaboration and so that makes it really freeing for for the image makers to engage with them. So I always love working with models, any size model, but just models who are interested in in being a part of it. I think with celebrities, so much of their fame comes from the perception of who they are. And they're very, you know, they are brands to and of themselves. So they are precious with the way that they they present themselves. So you have to really, you have a kind of a third voice uh, in an opinion of how they would like to be seen on the cover of a magazine. And sometimes we're all aligned and sometimes we're not. And so there's a bit of a negotiation in terms of what the story could be from a fashion perspective and an image perspective and what, you know, a celebrity might feel comfortable with it being. And the, the best pictures are often the ones with celebrities who are willing to throw it all away and like get in the deep end. Like my favorite photo from the Florence Pew cover that just came out was her holding a huge salmon. Love that photo. She said, so I just remember being like, we we were like, for some reason, like food was, I like kind of came into the shoot with there already being a concept because, you know, we have a creative director and we have like a lot of different creatives in um, within the company that are already thinking about these things before an editor is kind of assigned to a cover shoot. So... Food was already on the table, and we just like I kind of just ran with it. That was your most recent cover mm-hmm. for Vogue. So you decide there's a, a concept that you come with, and mm-hmm. that many cooks in the kitchen have worked on together. Yes. And then the clothes are coming in how, and then where you want you want an A to B. I want an A to B. A to I want Z. the nuts and bolts. the nuts and bolts. Okay, so. It honestly starts with the collections. Okay. We go to the collections. Great point. Every season. And I always explain it like we are like these editors, us being editors, are these little like space travelers. And we go to these different planets that are run by these designers. And we like see their world and we collect our data. And then we come back to our home planet and Love. we explain <laughs> and we explain what this weird world is all about. And so... Throughout that process, which is a month-long process, I'm, you know, in sitting at the shows, taking notes on the things that are, like, speaking to me. And more often than not, very organically, stories emerge. Like, you see, it's like some weird, like, they're all in collusion with each other. Like, some weird... Um, synergy to a lot of these collections and you build these stories and they're not and they're not and you build these stories and then we come back and we put it all on boards we go on Vogue Runway and we screenshot all of the the looks and we put them on boards boards or PDFs I have now moved into a PDF territory (laughs) there are some purists who still do boards I don't have patience so I can't wait for printers and I also care about the planet Okay. But mostly I don't have patience. Okay. So I do it on a PDF. And if it looks good together, that's kind of like a solid idea that we then present in our, you know, fashion meetings, whatever gets greenlit. I try and look for covers or assignments that those clothes will work for. So typically 
then those requests will go out for those clothes. We'll have a certain shoot date. They'll come in. Virginia Smith, the fashion director of Vogue specifically, will go through the racks. We'll kind of like look at the need, the business needs for the magazine, who has been represented throughout the year, who has it, what would be a great cover. And then we will go into our run through the namesake of this yes. podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I think a lot of people don't know what an actual run through is. Yes. I. You know what? I like have a secret. I'm sorry. Diversion. Is this okay? Yes. <laughs> um, I have a very real desire to secretly film a run through and put it on TikTok. <laughs> I really feel like Anna needs to be on TikTok. And I also really feel like the run through is like a perfect way of introducing it because it is like definitely the rawest, most honest, but also like most useful tool of being in the office. It's like describe if you if this was the TikTok, describe what it would be. Okay. It would be all of us, first of all, frantically running up and down the up and down the halls trying to like get the clothes in the right order on the rack because you have to like present it in a certain way so that All it's received. All of us is you, your assistant, the fashion you, assistant. Yes, me, my assistant, the fashion assistants, the market editors who are the ones who are actually doing the logistical calling in of the samples and getting them here and organizing the messengers. It would be Garth from the messenger center who's like running the the garment bags over to us. Then we get it on the rack and then we all pretend like we weren't just doing two hours of cardio and we <laughs> slow down and we walk very calmly into the office, into Anna Winter's office, our editor-in-chief, and we explain, like, what we're thinking for this story. And sometimes she's into it. Sometimes she's not. There's It's always a conversation. She has amazing feedback and she, like, likes to get into the process. So, like, we, we like, discuss what works for the story. Like, maybe with eight pages only, it's probably not about this, like, obscure designer that I found in Iceland <laughs> and maybe it's more about like Max Mara Max Mara or Prada or any you know any of these great brands that are really really supportive of the magazine um, and then we go away and we do some rethinking and sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOC and then can we, you tell us what AWOC means a I, I feel like I shouldn't. Like, should I? It's it's out there. Is it there. out there? Is it out there? Is it yeah. out there? Okay. I actually wrote a story I about it. Oh, you did? <laughs> I want it on a shirt. It means um, A-W-O-K. Anna yeah. Winter okay. Yeah. She's okay. And often, Anna, when she approves something, will write A-W-O-K on a post-it. Yes. When I left Vogue full-time, um, beloved colleague uh, Mark Waducci and Martin Hoops made me a t-shirt in post-it yellow with the font oh, of a oh That's and nice. I love it. Oh Martin Hoops it. throwback. Love him. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the subject will come in for a fitting if we're lucky and we'll do all of the pre-tailoring and then we pack it all up in a bunch of black cases, get on a plane somewhere, shoot the, shoot the damn thing. Okay. And <laughs> if it's someone like the vice president, yeah. are you... Like, are you emailing the vice president's sizes? Like, how gnarly yeah. does that get? Honestly, what's so weird is that, like, you forget that they're, like, public servants. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, they're not, like, as precious as, like, if you're working with, working with like, a celebrity that has, like, 2,000 people around them to, like, you know, vet every piece of information that goes their way. It was pretty direct communication with her communications director at the time. That being said, I would like to use this opportunity to reveal. Please do. To reveal <laughs> that. This is also a semantics thing and also a definition of editorship that I think people will need explain you know to be explained. Um, I was a sittings editor on that shoot, which is very different oh, from please a fashion explain editor. That. The which, in my mind, the way that I say it in like easy to understand terms is like a sittings editor's job is to like make sure the picture gets taken in a way that is 
acceptable for the magazine in this kind of sense. Like, we're there to, like, make sure it all goes down in a way that feels vogue. Like, you know, there's no actual styling. We're still, like, involved in the image making and, like, talking with the photographer and the set designer to create the picture. But clothes can can be absent from that scenario. Mm. Meaning the the subject is wearing their own clothing or clothing of their choice. Is wearing their own clothing and clothing of their choice. And I just have to say, because... I really bit the bullet for a very long time. I did not choose those clothes that she was wearing. The vice president has a stylist. And, you know, we kind of, like, communicated about colors and, like, the idea that maybe it, like, wasn't a pantsuit moment in the wake of, like, pantsuit nation. Mm. But, you know, it was what the vice president would feel comfortable in. And the first time that I saw the clothes were when she walked onto set. And, and can she you just remind wear, everyone what they were? She was wearing a powder blue uh, Michael Kors suit in one look. And then she was wearing like a casual in her closet black skinny pant, a Converse, a white shell, and a black jacket in, that was her own. Um, in the picture that ultimately ended up being on the cover. And you know what? She asked to wear the Converse. And they look, yeah. they look good. I mean, and I thought they looked good, too. too. I was like, I, look, I'm always going to be a Manolo girl, so I'm always like, okay. <laughs> but also the Manolo. But it was, like, very cool. And it's like, I'm sorry, this woman is make is leading the free world. I feel like she has free will enough to decide what clothes are on her body. Yeah. And it is not, I'm sorry, I love fashion. It is not the end-all and be-all of why Kamala Harris was on the cover of Vogue magazine. Yeah. I don't think it's what she's wearing. It's more like what she's doing and what she's saying and what she's thinking. So... That's that on that. How do you deal with criticism? Like a baby. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it comes with the territory. I think I really, first of all, I am a critical thinker. And criticism has never been anything that I've shied away from when directing it towards people of power. So I embrace the fact that I'm criticized. What I can't stand is that the goalpost shift for women, the goalpost shift for black women, the goalpost shift Mm. for fat women, especially within this industry that has so long prioritized the voices of people who are everything but that. So it can be really difficult to feel as if you are held to some sort of impossible standard of placating and pleasing every demographic when you are most often the least considered of them all. So it can be, that can be difficult and it can be frustrating, but it's also like, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way because I feel like my skin is thick enough to deal with it and it's certainly thick enough to dish it out. So I welcome it as much as I hate it. (laughs) I mean, you have dished it out quite a bit when you've held people accountable when some other people didn't want to speak up. What have you, have you taken anything away since this very public sort of trauma of... Mm-hmm. The Fashion Week yay debacle? Um, you know what? I don't know. I think... I don't know. I mean, one thing that was really difficult in that situation is that I actually feel like I was trying to approach it with some semblance of grace. Like, I think yeah. I was too gracious. And it was harmful and hurtful to people who had the same visceral reaction that I did to a racist t-shirt. And um, I wish that I 
had not chosen to filter my perspective in order to give allowance for some sort of like ideological or theoretical framework to that act of violence that I I think in that I learned that our gut feelings don't always need to be mediated for mm-hmm. public consumption and you know that is something that I'll take with me going forward for anyone who wasn't who's been living under a rock people who are not extremely online yes. so Kanye Kanye gay was you know refers to the show that Kanye showed in which he presented white lives matter t-shirts Gab happened to be present, obviously was very vocal and hold, held him accountable for what was a really extremely act, act of racism. Um, and he proceeded to terrorize her online and um, it, which was and which, his followers also. Yes, it was. It got very ugly. Um, and Gab was extremely gracious. It was pretty it was pretty gnarly, but it was it, I, it was just so strange to think that hundreds of millions of people were finding out who I was and what I was about via such a, like, dark situation. And just to clarify, I mean, he really resorted to schoolyard bully tactics. He posted photos of you on his Instagram saying, how could she wear this? His followers came at you for the way you look, Mm -hmm. for things you said. And it took real, I think, resilience to stand up to that. Did you meet with him afterwards? Did you try and talk it out? Yeah, I did meet with him. I don't know if talking it out is the right phrase, but we definitely talked for many hours. And uh, Where you did know, you do that? We did it at his headquarters. He they bought a building in Paris on the like just off the Champs Elysees, and we met there. So it was like very much his turf, and we just talked. And you know, I was kind of there t- to solicit an apology, and that apology didn't ever come. But it was it ended up being like much more of a forum for him to like continue speaking. You know, from a place of like extreme toxicity so it wasn't like a useful or beneficial conversation but um yeah it was like a very the thing that upset I, I always talk about it because I think that it like really illuminated issues that I like couldn't issues within myself that I couldn't like quite identify like the ways in which like black women feel like very much hated the way that like fat people feel very much hated the way that like uh critic we are not afforded criticality or like critical thinking in the way that like other people are and so in interviews like this you know I always hearken back to it but what is most I guess frustrating about that moment is it's now something that is like inextricable from who I am and like I really want I love going on podcasts now and I love doing interviews because I want to establish that I am like so much more beyond that one instance of course and um yeah if anything one hopes that the platform is now at least bigger to keep saying the right things, so. Well put. Gab, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. Gabriella Karifa Johnson is global contributing fashion editor at large here at Vogue. The run-through will be back in just a moment.
Hi, everyone. It's Chloe, and I'm so excited to share something fabulous with you. Vogue's first ever global fashion community, Vogue Club. Our members get to mingle with Vogue editors, yes, including me, and fellow fashion enthusiasts at exclusive events around the world. And that's just the start. Membership opens doors to the fashion industry, bringing you expert career advice and insider style and beauty tips. What are you waiting for? Head over to Vogue.com slash membership to join. And here's a little treat. Use code TRT20 and snag 20% off your membership. That's TRT20 for 20% off your ticket to Vogue Club. Are you in? Hey, run-through listeners. Are you curious about what goes on behind the scenes at Vogue and in the world of fashion? Join Vogue Club, a one-of-a-kind fashion community where you can unlock exclusive access to Vogue editors, industry players, and fellow members, as well as receive expert style advice, tickets to VIP events, hand-picked gifts, and so much more. Visit VogueClub.com today and get 20% off using promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. That's VogueClub.com, promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. Chloe, I am super excited about uh, this next conversation. I know, I can't wait. I visit um, Raul Lopez of Loire's studio. Oh yeah, you've been a fan since day one. I have been a fan since day one. I met him when he was basically a teenager, when he was um, still part of um, Hood by Air. He was, oh, um, he was part of Hood by Air? Yeah, he, he oh, co-founded it with, um, I didn't know that. with Shane. It was a, they were a duo. Oh, interesting. I yeah. never knew that... Okay. Yeah. So I met I met them back then, and and then since he's struck out on his own and yeah. And where's his studio? His studio is out in Brooklyn. It's um what is that neighborhood? Industry C. Okay. Yeah. Um. And, and he's is he having closing. a full show? He's closing New York Fashion Week, which is a big deal. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it used Ford to be Mark it. Jacobs. Yep. Then then Tom Ford had it. I mean, most recently Tom Ford has had that spot. Okay. I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Good I'm, for him that he's closing. It's a thing. Yeah. Hi, I'm Raul Lopez, and I have a brand name, Loire. And tell us a bit about the name. I actually didn't put two and two together for a long time. It was basically your name backwards. It is my name backwards. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it all really stemmed from creating this, Alter Ego, it was actually my AOL name. It was a way of like kind of hiding myself and not letting people know who I really was because I was obviously gay and I didn't want no one to know and blah, blah, blah. Like being in the chat rooms, but it was still me. And I always say like Luar is just a reflection of myself. So it's funny because I used it in the beginning when I started designing my own label it was Luar Zippoe. I was like, I just want to fool everybody in the industry and make them think I'm like a French boy. Like, you know. <laughs> it does like sound like a French yeah, boy. Yeah, I was like, it sounds kind of French, Luar Zippoe, <laughs> you know. And like, it was a way of like, okay, this is how I can like clickbait. They will know it's like this Dominican boy from Brooklyn. Even though they already knew me, but it was a way to like, again, use the alter ego to like reel people in. You're one of the few New York designers who actually was born in New York. And tell me what it was like growing up in Brooklyn. I mean, you grew up in Williamsburg. I'm born and raised in Williamsburg, which was called Los Sures, which is the south side of Williamsburg. I mean, it was definitely a diamond in the rough. (laughs) (laughs) It was 
not a good era to be living in Brooklyn. It was probably top five or ten in the 80s and 90s, deemed one of the worst places to live in. Wow. And had the biggest poverty rate. Mm. But to me, it was beautiful. I loved everything about it. We were getting robbed every month, probably. Oh. And our, our, we were get, I, I remember coming home and no TV. Everything is gone. Like just the sofas. And my dad was the, the super of the building. So they hated us. It was like, <laughs> no. they would spray can our like door. I mean, this is like the graffiti era. And it was like floor to ceiling graffiti in the building. It was just like crazy. It looked like an art. Not, now it would be like an art installation. But we would get home and it would be like F the super. And like <laughs> oh I had the kryptonite for his wife. Ooh. Like it was like crazy. But. Even though it was this like really crazy urban dystopia, I mean, that's all I knew. So to me, it was really amazing and it was beautiful. And a lot of my inspiration comes from that era. I feel like it built the skin that I have now and the person I am. And I'm very grateful for everything that I saw growing up in this like shitty dump. I always sit back and think about it. I mean, I was in the Uber coming over here and I got really emotional because I was just looking out the window and... Not to sound like cliche, and I was like, damn, it's so crazy. Like, I'm still in the same apartment I grew up in, you know? Wow. And to me, it's like, all this can come. And I've lived a life of like, any kid would wish to live, you know? Yeah. And I've been privileged. I scraped myself to the top and I've hustled and bustled. So, and like, going to the bathroom right now, I was upstairs and, um, sorry, I'm getting a little emotional, but like, the guy who was like in the bathroom, cleaned the windows. He he was just like, you make me so proud. You're mm. like, I'm Dominican and I see how hard you work in your office. He's like, I didn't know you were Dominican. He's like, thank you so much for doing this for mm. us. And I was like, thank you. And I was walking down here and I, was, I had to tell him, I was like, I need to take like a, a moment. But I think that's like my mission is just, oh, we could all do it in this like space. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the energy at your shows and having seen how hard you worked and how you really lead from your heart and your soul. And yeah. so, so much of your work, you feel the person who you are. Yeah. And there's something really pure and, and beautiful about, about that. I recently went to the Harvey Milk School to talk to some of the kids with a friend of yours, James Garland. And, oh my God. Yeah, and I think you went to that school, right? So actually, I used to sneak into the school. Okay, okay. So James and Shane, Shane and me co-founded HBA, mm-hmm. and and James was part of the clique as well, and right. also designed like the accessories, and you know, he was part of the team. It was just like us three, mm-hmm. you know? But it was just so funny because I used to go there because Shane we use the Photoshop class <laughs> and we would use it to make the HBA t-shirts. Right. Wow. Illustrator was so expensive. Amazing. <laughs> so it was like we were going there and then we were like, get the PDF and then take it to like, I think it was like on Barrick Street and get the screens burned. And then we were so screen in my house on the floor. Wow. I know. Humble beginnings. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool. I mean, I think we should explain a little bit about like what makes this, that school particularly special. Obviously, it's like designed specifically for queer children. Yeah, for queer children. It's just for queer children. And I think it was a good moment in my life because I was going to a straight high school. Right. And I'm 
met Shane on Christopher Street, which was like the safe haven for like all the queer kids and that, especially for the POC kids, because we couldn't be who we really wanted to be. Like I used to pack my clothing in my backpack, get changed on the train wow. platform when I would get off on like West 4. And, and there was no M train. So it was like from the J. <laughs> yeah, the, and this is at night. So I was like wow. sneaking out at like 10 p.m. And then going to like Christopher Street. And so I would take the J to the F and then get off on West 4th and then walk all the way to the end because it was this like round mirror (laughs) at the end of the platform, which is like, I mean, there wasn't cameras, so they had these mirrors. And I used to go to Milk was because on Fridays they would have after school was like voguing. This is where like the mini balls started and... Shane was nasty at voguing. Like, <laughs> it was so good. But it was funny because I used to have really long hair. So, like, my thing was, like, always throwing shade with my hair. And, like, <laughs> and that's how kind of, like, even before we were cool, like, we were, there was this spot in Harlem called the Karate Club. And it was called the, cl- the Clubhouse. And Clubhouse is where we all used to go. And that's where they would have, like, the mini balls every Thursday. I would go from Brooklyn to Harlem and leave there at, like, 5 a.m. to go to school. Because those balls always start late, right? They don't get going uh, until. Like, so it was what like is the average you, start time. And so you was you would go and the beats they would just have like voguing beats. It was like and you'll just be going crazy for like three hours, wow. and then it would be like let's say like from like ten to like one a.m. and then the ball would start. But for those three hours, you're just going crazy. What and, was the atmosphere like? What was it like for you as like a teenager to be in those spaces? Good. It was just like a really difficult era to, you know, be flamboyant and dress the way we did. I mean, we stood out even in the balls. We stood out in Christopher Street. We stood out in the hood. We stood out everywhere we went. We always stood out. And I think like it was a safe haven for all of us. Like mm-hmm. a lot of these kids were being displaced. They were being kicked out of homes. I had the luxury and the privilege to not be kicked out, but I still couldn't be myself. I'm sort of curious. You, you know, I feel like you probably came out of the womb with style. Like, when did you know you wanted to design? I always loved it. Yeah. I always try to like, like I said, my dad was a super. So he was trying to get me to do like custodial work or like <laughs> construction or something. And I'm like, no, I just wanted to be by my mom by the sewing machine. If you see like all my looks when I was a kid. I've my, heard about them. My mom would have to like put me in a suit and tie to go to school. I wouldn't go. And they used to call me Chalinita, which means little tie, because I always had to have a tie on. (laughs) It's so funny. I'm like, still the same girl. (laughs) (laughs) Look at this picture. I have it always on my phone. You'll have to describe it to us. It's like the gold chain, the fade, the hair design. (laughs) It's like the t-shirt. I'm like, I'm I'm the same person. (laughs) It's the same person. Literally the same. But I always knew, I always wanted to be a designer since I was a kid. I also was a way of escaping and kind of becoming this chameleon to fit into all the circles in school. Mm. So I was like kind of like designing things that, you know, could appease like the hood kids, like Mm. the goth kids, like the nerd. So it was like he, I would have like the Timberland on with like a, pair of like really weird jeans that I probably like chopped up and like, what I don't know, took the sleeves off, put it on my t-shirt and like safety. It was just, that was so crazy. It was just like, but it was duct tape. I, I made so much stuff out of duct tape. It was crazy. Like wow. Home Depot probably made so much money off of me. 
<laughs> growing up because it was like if you ask like people that went to like junior high school high school with me they were like oh my god they used to ask me if I could design something for them and they would pay me with the duct tape because I would go so crazy with this duct tape it was like Valentine's was coming it was like red tape and like white tape and like black it was like and then I had the thrift store Domsies that was like two blocks from me so I would just go buy leather uh. chop it up do like the whole thing it was I mean, kind of still my DNA. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still the same girl. Yeah, it's I it's love a hybrid. So cool. Yeah, no, and and I I love how your your aesthetic sort of speaks to that too. You know, and obviously you had knowledge. You know, you'd already been part of a fashion brand. Like, what was it like? What was the kind of emotion going into doing your first thing solo? Because like, obviously you knew you'd you'd had a history of doing fashion, but mm-hmm. like there's something different about striking out on your own and it being I th- own. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's different when you don't have a shoulder to lean on or mm-hmm. someone to like ask or yeah. I was completely by myself yeah. and Shayna's a genius. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, we're still like close friends, like yeah. just still my sister, you know, and credit is due when it's due and mm-hmm. she is one of the best designers that have existed in our era, you for know, sure, for, sure. for sure. Like, yeah, for sure. it's in, like, period. Yeah. But I think that was our story and I wanted to say my own story and, you know, and when I decided to do it, it was difficult. It was hard. I was alone and it's a hard thing to start again from scratch. I bet. We scratched. Yeah, to get to the top. Built, you built a brand. I wanted to create something that people can also exist, be, and fit in. And if you don't fit in, and make clothing that make people feel comfortable in their own skin. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and then you went from that to like having a, a best-selling it bag. I mean, you did what a lot of designers really, what is so difficult to do. Like, tell us about like what the process was of, <laughs> Designing that first bag and obviously being an accessories girl yourself, knowing accessories. Like what I think you- I, I mean, I'm an accessory girl. Like that's my thing. But it took me a long time to like figure out the perfect silhouette that also I wanted to pay homage to my grandmother and my mom, but I didn't know how to like conceptualize it yet. They hustled and bustled in these factories in New York. I wanted to like kind of represent the mod era of like fashion with the handle, mm. which is more like my grandmother's era. Mm. And then the briefcase-esque shape of the body, which is more like an 80s, 90s, you know, nod to my mom. At home, they, I, I remember making a briefcase out of like neoprene. And I put like, I remember cutting off backpack straps and oh like God. literally hand stitching it and I covered my dad's briefcase in the neoprene and he's looking for it and it was in my closet <laughs> and I had took it and like wrapped it in like black neoprene and like put straps on it. And I think the bag is really special. I wanted people to take a piece of me and my heritage and also like paying homage to immigrants that came here. I like to share stories through my pieces. T- tell me about the name of the bag. Uh, so the bag is called Anna. Uh, it's named after my mom, both my grandmothers, my sister, and X, Y, and Z. They're all Annas. That's why I named it Annas because of them. All the female figures in my family that really molded me into who I am. Mm -hmm. And 
my mom is my biggest supporter since I was a kid. And I remember her like her like being like, no, I want to take you to therapy. But it wasn't because she was trying to convert me. Right. She wanted me to come out. Right, right, right. And right, she right. Knew, wow. she saw me so miserable. Right. And she was just really trying to help me free myself. Mm-hmm. And she she was like, if you can't tell me, maybe you'll tell somebody else yeah. that's not in the family. And like, you know, you can finally like just let it out and say it. Like, just say it. Because she always says it. She says it. She was like, she was like, when I came out to my mom, she was like, oh, the only one who didn't know was you, you know? <laughs> and I'm crying. It's like 3 a.m. And I come home and I'm like crying on the couch. And she comes down. She's like, what's wrong? And I was like, I'm bisexual. I didn't say I didn't want to say I was gay. And you know, I was like, I still like girls. But she was like, oh, sweetie. You know, it's okay. She was like, the only one who didn't know was you. And I was like, that wasn't the outcome I wanted. I wanted you to cry. And like, she was just laughing. It was kind of crazy because I was so scared my whole life. Yeah. Countdown to Fashion Week. You you are closing Fashion Week, which is a huge deal. How are you feeling right now? I feel crazy. Good crazy though. But a lot of things, like I'm a bit angsty, just nervous, you know. I just want to make everybody proud and not saying like I'm not going to shut it down because I am. Yeah, I'm excited to know what you have in store because I think everyone, so many people, myself included, your collection was one of the best of life. Thank you. That means a lot. That means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the office was like everybody was so excited. So, I mean, I think this is pressure. (laughs) No pressure. I mean, it's always pressure, even without the pressure. (laughs) Exciting. I think it'll be. Pretty dope. I hope so. Yeah, I can't wait to see. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Go check out his collection when it goes live on Vogue.com next week. Dun dun. Dun dun. The Run Through with Vogue is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mel. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>